Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. We are in Boston today with two amazing women. Tatiana Rosanna, a chef at Outlook Kitchen and Bar at the Envoy Hotel uh, down by the Seaport area, I guess, uh, which is just exploding. And you've been there two years and we're eager to hear about it. But thanks for being with us, Tatiana. Thank you for having me. And Abby Maxman, the new CEO of Oxfam. Uh, Oxfam is a really important global organization that's been dedicated to alleviating poverty. Share Our Strength has worked with Oxfam for many years. Um, we're thrilled to have you here, Abby, and congratulations on your new job. Thanks so much. So good to be here, Billy. Thanks. Uh, Tatiana and I were just talking about um, having the two of you on together. And I, when I was first looking at it, I was thinking, okay, so what are the commonalities here? We've got a chef and we've got kind of a global development anti-poverty leader. But you both have such an interesting outlook on global affairs. Tatiana, you're born in Miami, but of Cuban background. Your parents That's are right. from Cuba, still in Cuba? Um, I my Both my parents currently live in Florida right now. Um, they immigrated from Cuba when they were about five or six. Got it. Um, first generation American, but yeah. And you went to French culinary school. I did. And you married a Korean American woman. That's so right. So you've got a pretty global outlook. And yes, that's, a I, lot of influences. How does How's that reflected in your cooking? Um, it's definitely reflected. I pull from a lot of different places, but my philosophy on cooking is that it should move you and make you feel something. And I have so many influences to draw from um, my growing up in a very traditional Cuban household. And my wife predominantly cooks Korean food at home. And then I do have those um, strong French techniques um, at my foundation. So you will see a little bit of all those flavors in the menu. And it's a lot of fun to see people's reactions to the different flavors and the different cultures. And you were almost not a chef at all, right? You were almost a doc until uh, calculus undid you. Calculus was my downfall. Um, I did about two years of um, biomedical science undergrad degree, was really struggling with calculus. But at the root of it, I think it just wasn't what my heart wanted. And I had what I like to call my quarter life crisis and I called my father in tears and and was like I don't I don't know what to do. I know I'm not going to be happy as a doctor and he said, you know, you'll be good at anything you put your head into, but you'll be great at what you put your heart into and that's what you need to follow and that's what I did. I got my bachelor's degree in creative writing and went to culinary school and moved to Boston and it, it's been an amazing journey ever since. And was that a, like, was that a quick decision? Was that a, like a big internal wrestling debate? Am I going to go to culinary school? Like, how did you pick culinary school? When I had this conversation with my dad, he said, what makes you happy? What drives you? What can you see yourself doing for the rest of your life? And I said, I, I want to write and I want to cook. And he said, do it. And that day I went to my counselor and I changed my major and I applied for culinary school. It was that quick. Wow. Okay. Yeah. We're going to come back and talk about Absolutely. what happened after culinary you got it. school, because I know you've got kind of a distinguished pedigree in Boston restaurants here. Yeah. Um, and Abby Maxman, your career has really been focused on poverty work and international development. I saw that you were the country director in two places really near and dear to my heart, Ethiopia, uh, which was for, this was for care before you were at Oxfam. Uh, the famine in Ethiopia in 1984 was the catalyst for starting Share Our Strength. That was what, uh, in terms of what you're talking about, Tatiana, what really moved me as I'd worked in government for a long time. And then there was this, I remember in August of 1984, a headline in the Washington Post that said 200,000 to die this summer in Ethiopia. And it really just, it just rocked me. And this was a kind of pre-internet, pre-social media. But as you'll recall, um, 
uh, you might, Abby, I don't know if you're old enough, Tatiana, but, you know, Live Aid and Bob Geldof and We Are the World and all of these, you know, big high profile celebrity anti-hunger activities to address this really catastrophic famine. Um, and it, it, and for my sister and I, uh, it was the instinct for starting Share Our Strength with the idea that we're not celebrities, but they probably won't be doing this in five years and we can build a lasting institution. And then you were also, I think, the country director for CARE in Haiti, uh, where, where Share Our Strength has also been involved a long time. What was the, what was the, what's your version of Tatiana's story in terms of what moved you and how you got into this? Well, I had a few catalyst moments as well. One was very similar to yours, Billy, and my I have a recollection of uh, sitting in a high school assembly in 1984, seeing images of the Ethiopian famine, and I couldn't believe that this was possible. Here I was from a food-secure family. I didn't think about what was on my plate at night. I assumed, without even realizing it, that food security, having meals uh, and healthy, nutritious ones was part of what was uh, part of my life. And when I had that moment, I don't think I realized what I was going to do with my life, but it definitely planted an important seed seeing that. And several years later, when I was graduating from college, trying to determine what, how I could take the passion and activism and interest I had to help make the world a better place, uh, that was certainly in my mind. And I had a seminal moment of uh, having applied for a fellowship to do some research in Latin America and also had an application in with the Peace Corps uh, where I was offered a job as an agriculture extension and community development worker. And I ended up taking that path uh, in Southern Africa in the late 80s. As a Peace Corps volunteer. As a Peace Corps in volunteer in Lesotho. Uh -huh. And uh, that was a very seminal moment in Southern African history politics uh, in terms of working and living in what was called a frontline state. Uh, Lesotho was a very active place in terms of the anti-apartheid movement and the implications of what was happening there. But it was also the beginning of uh, the HIV-AIDS epidemic that was not yet well known either. So uh, my work as an agriculture development and community development worker in Lesotho in the late 80s and then continued work in, in Southern Africa into the early 90s really just uh, became, uh, I was bitten by the bug uh, and understood more how I could influence and positively contribute to making change. And did you go from the Peace Corps directly to CARE or what was in between? There was quite a few steps in between. Uh, one was working with the World Food Program and they were phasing out a school feeding program that they had done in Southern Africa for many years. And uh, I was doing work to uh, on school gardens uh, to try to help replace and supplement school feeding uh, because of both the nutritious, the nutrition elements of that and the school curriculum and how important that is, but also it's an important factor in school attendance. And so my work with the World Food Program and also the German Agency for Technical Development at the time, also in Lesotho, so I worked through the uh, early 90s in the Southern Africa up to Zimbabwe as well, doing a lot of work and then pursued my master's degree uh, and joined CARE in Rwanda, in post-genocide Rwanda in 1995. And how many countries have you worked in altogether? Uh, a lot. That's a great <laughs> question. Um, I, I lived and worked, it's uh, long-term, long about eight or nine, but um, I, I can't even count, I think, 40 or 50, where I've 
spent time professionally uh, contributing to work in the NGO field. And Tatiana, in terms of your first job professionally, I think you told me that um, before you got hired into Harvest Restaurant here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you'd actually never worked in a restaurant or set foot in a restaurant kitchen. Never set foot in a restaurant kitchen. My resume was solely secretarial and, and office jobs, um, really trying to build my resume for the pre-med course that I thought I wanted to do. And it just wasn't for me. And when I showed up to Boston, you know, I knocked on on Mary's door at so Harvest. Mary Dumont, the Mary the Dumont, chef yeah, is and, and still is my mentor and has helped me um, so much just growing and learning who I am as a chef. And, you know, I, I was like, I don't know a whole lot, but I'm willing to learn and I want to be a part of this industry and, and I want you to be my my teacher. And that's what she was and is still to me. So what's the what's the role of a mentor like that? Like, what did she what did she actually do and how intimidating was it to step into a restaurant kitchen for the first time? It was incredibly intimidating. I will not lie. I went home in tears quite a few nights Um, in the beginning. It was hard for me to even view Mary as a mentor because it was a little bit of that tough love that she was giving me and trying to toughen me up for an industry that is so hard, um, especially on on women and women who are not as trained as maybe some others in the field. Um, but she, she did a great job of, of giving me that tough love while at the same time teaching me techniques that I needed to, to further my career. And she's just been amazing. And now that we no longer work together, I, I call and text her all the time with questions or ways of, you know, helping me learn to manage my own team in the way that she managed me, because I want to be that for my cooks and for, the culinarians that are coming into the industry that maybe are a little bit more insecure, don't have the experience or know that this is what they want to do, but don't know how to get there. I've known Mary Dumont for a long time. I imagine she was also a mentor to other young women and men who were coming up through the industry. And she's just that type of giving and generous She definitely is. Yes, 100%. Uh, And is the industry, I think of the industry because I know folks like Joanne Chang and Jody Adams and other women who are, you know, really strong leaders uh, in the restaurant industry here in Boston and around the country. But is it still a tough industry for women to break into here? Absolutely. I think it is. And and for the very foreseeable future will always be a tough industry for women, I think. And I, I hate even having to have this conversation where we are nowadays, but we have to work so much harder to, to get that respect and recollection and, and to earn our place in this industry as a reputable and respected chef. So that's a, that's almost like an ever present thing in your mind. Ever present. And, I try not to think about it, and I just go about my day um, as I would, and I think that helps. I think it's gotten me to where I am, um, but it's definitely always in the back of your mind. When I was first starting out, it was my first sous chef job anywhere, and I was working like an animal to prove that I was worthy of that position. And I'll never forget the executive chef at the time, and I won't name names, but um, looked at me and told me, you're very lucky to be here. I was very adamant against wanting to hire women in this kitchen. And um, from that day on... And did he give a reason why? He didn't. No. Um, I think it was just something he had. And it, it was so unfortunate because the three hardest working cooks in that kitchen were, were all women. And from that day on, I worked very, very, very hard to get to where I am. And 
it's almost a little bit of, of him telling me that was the fuel I needed to take that step further. And now I am where I am. And I look back on that and I'm like, I, I want to tell him thank you for saying that to me because it pushed me to work so hard to prove not only to him, but to everybody that women in the kitchen are no lower or any less talented than any man. I have a very similar formative experience of being sat down early on as a community development and agriculture extension worker, being sat down by the district agriculture officer and being told, I don't know what you're here for and what you have to offer, and I give you three months, and I know you're going to quit and you're going to fail. And that was such a driver for me, uh, you know, for better and for worse. You know, is that the right motivator? I'm not sure, but it was a, a particularly important one that— uh, my desire to to prove him wrong uh, certainly built my own resilience and inner strength to find new and creative ways of working and feel like I was always working as hard as I can until I would just collapse at night still in my clothes and get up in the morning and try again. Yeah. And, and I mean, the fact that he used the word lucky, I was lucky to be there because he didn't want to hire me originally and I wasn't his first choice. And I think I wanted to show him, no, you're the lucky one for having me here. You're the lucky one for for have having chosen me because now I'm going to prove to you just how integ integral and how important I will be to this kitchen. You have to wonder, I mean, except for that resilience on the part of both of you, how somebody thinks they're creating a positive culture or workplace environment by talking to somebody that way. It's just almost, you know, counterintuitive. Abby, I think of women's empowerment as something that's, you know, very core to Oxfam's work in poverty alleviation around the world. Can you talk a little bit about what Oxfam does and what kind of, I guess, particularly what you've seen in terms of the need? I always struggle with, you know, I, I went to Ethiopia several times. When I come back, start to describe to people just how dire the conditions are and how much of a difference we can make by getting involved there, but it's it pales in comparison to going there and seeing it yourself. And I feel like my words are never quite adequate to it. How do you how do you describe and how should we picture what some of the needs are for people around the globe who are living in poverty and the kind of difference that Oxfam can make for them? Yeah, um, you know what's something that has been a recurring theme for me in my career is being awed by the resilience of people living in extreme circumstances uh, and at the community level and different countries around the world that are facing conflict and social injustice issues. Some of Oxfam's work, it looks at uh, tackling the root causes and the injustice of poverty in three ways and helping communities and, and people build better futures for themselves uh, in long-term development uh, projects and, and programs and meeting their basic needs. Also, and most importantly, fundamentally, is how we look at the policy environment and what are the enablers or disablers that give people agency and the ability to really build resilience and, and uh, flourish in society and at community level. And we also save lives in disaster. Uh, obviously, there are circumstances that require uh, life-saving immediate responses, such as the Ethiopia situation that you were describing earlier, Billy, although that has some structural roots when those kind of famine-like situations happen. Uh, most recently with Oxfam, I was in South Sudan, uh, a place I had spent time uh, nearly two decades earlier, and I'd lived and worked in the Horn of Africa for many years. And on the ground, uh, I was in a in an area called Okobo, uh, working and 
where Oxfam works to help people uh, who are local communities, but as well as uh, people who have been displaced by conflict. And we are doing work at the national and international level to uh, look at how we stop the root causes of the problem, which is the conflict that is keeping people impoverished and hungry, uh, but also looking at the resilience of some of the people who we were doing ongoing programs with. Some incredible people, a woman named Mary, who was an activist, I would call her. She's just, she would probably call herself just a, a community member who was working closely with us to help develop programs that brought women and children and, and men together to uh, do bread making activities, to have a local hair, hair salon, uh, small business activities, and also other food production uh, work and literacy programs. So the dignity and resilience people were showing in the face of acute conflict uh, is never ceases to amaze me. And we do work at all levels, the policy, the getting food and, and clean water to people who need it most, and also building the resilience and strength and building better futures for individuals. I see a potential trip for you, Tatiana, maybe to Sudan or somewhere else absolutely. where Abby needs somebody that can teach people to cook to. And, and make bread. Um, Absolutely. Abby, back up a little bit, though, and tell us, what does extreme poverty look like for those of us who don't get to travel the world the way you do? How should we picture it and understand it? It's grinding. Uh, and I, it's hard, difficult for me at times to describe because even though I have spent many years, decades, working with and, and I lived for several years in a dung hut. People use the resources that are available to build walls. And so uh, the cement, if you will, to put stones and, and straw together is a mix of manure, uh, which is usually readily available in most places, and mud. And so that with um, either thatch and in some of the more wealthier households, a corrugated iron roof um, can be put on. Uh, but it's exactly what it has what it is in terms of a mix of mud, dung, stones to make walls, uh, build a thatch roof, uh, had a wooden door uh, and a little lock and key, which always felt a little uh, uh, superfluous because one could really get in in any way if one needed. Um, but there was it's always difficult keeping rodents out. Uh, I have to say that was a problem. And uh, keeping your food, uh, you know, you would have to go get food or grow what you could uh, and only have perishable uh, things that are non-perishable or that you'd have to plan very, very carefully about what you would eat each day. Uh, there was a woman named Faith who I met in South Sudan recently, 25 years old, had been displaced by conflict, had walked for almost a month with her four children uh, when I met them. They were living in, uh, they felt better because they were living in a safe space, but in a, virtu uh, a dung mud hut, uh, had very few clothes. They didn't know where their next meal was coming from or where they could get clean water or just any of those basics. And there's uh, kind of two angles to that. One is, um, one could feel, you know, what can I do to help this person and this family have agency to overcome their circumstances over time? And then that sense of how do we help them get their basic needs met at this moment in time? And people like Faith and like Mary, they really show their resilience, their desire to live in dignity and security. And they want to 
do for themselves. They don't want people to do things for them. So how do we partner and collaborate and assure the mutual dignity and respect in everything we do is a very important part of our work. One of the really uh, formative experiences for uh, me at our work at Share Our Strength was visiting Ethiopia and meeting a um, young woman named Alima Dari. She was 12 years old and just a beautiful girl who spoke perfect English. And we were in her classroom. I was there with Senator, former Senator Harris Wofford, who'd been a Peace Corps director in Ethiopia and a small delegation. And um, I was standing on the side of the room and uh, she turned to me and said something that I couldn't quite hear. And so I walked over to her and I said, um, I said, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. And she said, God bless you for coming here. Um, and we had this nice little talk and then we ended up uh, exchanging addresses and sending, she sent me pictures of her middle school graduation and so forth. Uh, and about two years later, when one of my colleagues went to uh, Ethiopia and I couldn't go, I gave him a note to give it to Alima. And this is a guy named Chuck Schofield who I talked to every day, three times a day. And uh, about 10 days went by without me hearing from him. And I finally got an email that said, I hate like hell to tell you this, but Alima died from cerebral malaria. Uh, she'd been misdiagnosed. Uh, we were helping to fund a hospital that they were building next to the school. It wasn't finished. And uh, it was just a, it was just one of those terrible shocks to your system, but underscores that, you know, so many people who live in poverty have so many issues that they're grappling with at the same time. In this case, the lack of health care. She was misdiagnosed, I think, as having tuberculosis. And by the time they got her to a hospital in, um, in Addis Ababa, it was too late. And, um, you know, I always think of uh, Martin Luther King talking about the fierce urgency of now, and there's such a thing as being too late in terms of, you know, when you decide to act on things. So there is a life and death quality to this work, which we all see. One of the things I love, Tatiana, about the industry that you work in, and, and you in particular, is you've been so generous in terms of trying to not only do what you do, which is to run a successful business, but to participate and share our strengths, food and wine events to help us raise money to fight hunger. Uh, you must get asked to do a lot of things, but uh, there must be some things, I guess, that uh, personally pull at you and move you to to get you to be engaged. Talk a little bit about some of your community involvement. Absolutely. And I think um, No Kid Hungry and Share Our Strengths in particular have really pulled me in and, and have drawn me to want to help, I think, because from a very young age, I've always been very acutely aware of hunger, not only in our country, but in the world. And growing up in an immigrant family who immigrated from a country who is that is so poor, such as Cuba, it was always very ingrained in me how fortunate I was to have what I have. And um, seeing, you know, my peers in my in my public schools that I went to in Miami and seeing that they didn't have as much as, as I did, even from a very young age, I remember wanting to help. And I, I didn't know what I could do to help at that age. I mean, I was in elementary school at the time, but growing up, I knew that I wanted to be a help and an aid to these children. And so I'm doing what I can with what I have to help. And it's something that I think more people should get involved in. It, it takes nothing more than your time to, to invest into these children and, and to help raise money and, and volunteer and, and do what you can. You don't necessarily need to donate tons of money from yourself in order to help. All you need to do is donate your time. And I think it's really important for you know, myself and for other chefs to, that are able to do this to, to help. And are, are, by doing what you do, are you in a way becoming kind of a Mary Dumont mentor to other people on your staff? I'm sure there's young 
folks on your staff who are seeing you get engaged in the community and realizing that that might be a path that I want to take as well? I hope I am. Um, that's the goal. I, I, I have very large shoes to fill. She's an incredible woman and an incredible mentor. And, and I know I still have a ways to go to, to reach that status. But every, every day that I walk into that kitchen, I go in with the mindset that I want to inspire and help and, and change um, what I can. And one of the keys to that is um, making sure that you're successful in a position to do that. I always think of on you know the airplane, they tell us to put our own oxygen mask on first, so we're bit better able to help those. Um, how did you get to be so successful that you've ended up with your own restaurant at the Envoy Hotel here? Um, a lot of support from my family and my wife, 100%. Um, I give all the credit to them. If they could be wearing the chef coat with the executive chef title on it, I, I would gladly give it to them. I could not be where I am without them at all. Um, they've pushed me and they've dealt with not having me there for holidays and for birthdays and the long nights and the, you know, crazy hours, they have definitely been my support system. I could not have done it without them. Um, what's the support system behind Oxfam, Abby? You've got millions of grassroots donors as well as foundations and others who support you. Um, how does How does Oxfam fuel its work? Well, there's something, uh, so I'm realizing the many commonalities we have, Tatiana, in terms of all, who's behind all of us. Um, you know, and I think personally, my own family, similarly to you, Tatiana, uh, and Oxfam. What I've came into Oxfam just in June of this year after being a longtime partner, collaborator, admirer, friend of Oxfam. And I've come into this organization that is full of what feels like the most passionate, committed professionals uh, that I've had the privilege to work with in my life. And they are activists and courageous and creative, and they get their energy. We get our energy from e each other and, as you say, Billy, the incredible supporters we have around the world. Uh, and I've had the privilege coming in to reach out and just make some phone calls to some of our longtime supporters, find out who has been with us for the journey and uh, hearing about individual stories of commitment because they want to give to Oxfam, because they want to participate, because they want to tell their friends about what we're doing or to be active, be present, be engaged, call your congressman write a letter. There's so many ways of connecting and supporting, uh, be it money or otherwise. So Tatiana participates in a number of different types of share our strength uh, food events, uh, our Taste of the Nation event, our Seated No Kid Hungry dinner. Uh, a very small portion of our money does go internationally um, to support mostly long-term developmental efforts as opposed to immediate feeding efforts. Um, how do you even think about that when governments, the United Nations, others are not able to solve conflict? How can an organization like Oxfam play a role in that? Well, we use our voice uh, and we have incredible policy researchers uh, working tirelessly and campaigners working every day. But we make sure that all of our policy and messages are grounded in what's happening on the ground and the stories of Faith and Mary and many others. And it's important to bring that local to global uh, integration of uh, the experience of, of people, making sure that we're talking about a human economy, about human beings and keeping that at play. When we talk about 65 million refugees, when we talk about 800 million people going hungry every night, when we talk about the fact that the eight richest men in the world have as much wealth as the bottom 3.6 billion people in the world, 
that doesn't necessarily tell the story or bring the commitment and passion uh, to, it makes it feel Un, unmanageable at times, the statistics of that size. So a human economy in terms of looking at what is good for people, the planet, for producers, uh, how we look at the holistic value chain of, of humanity and how we feed people and create a safe world for people. So when I came back from South Sudan just recently, it was around the same time as the UN General Assembly, where you have all the heads of state and member states there. And I was able to sit on a high-level panel on South Sudan with those who have the power sitting around that table to end the conflict. It is within their power to do so. And uh, was able to call out and bring my experiences and Oxfam's experiences and those who we work and collaborate with to that table and to the place of influence. Now, we know that that requires political will and a lot of other things, but we're working tirelessly uh, at all angles, whether it's behind the scenes or in those public spaces, to call out the the unacceptables and the things that we really need to change. And we do see change that happens, but we can't give up, even when we're feeling... Uh, concerned or, or overwhelmed by the statistics and the numbers because every life and every individual matters. And I'm very moved by, by what you said there about putting names to these numbers because I think so often it's easy for us to talk about, you know, 700 or 800 million or however many people are going to bed hungry. But when you put names to these numbers, how can you not want to speak up? How can you not want to help um, they're not just numbers. They are human beings that are going to bed hungry and, and anything that we can do, you know, to help it. Why wouldn't you want to help? That's right. And, you know, for me, I'm a mother of three. And uh, I think about these choices that other mo mothers are making mm -hmm. every day. Who gets a meal today? Making a choice like that, yeah. how your hungry kid and Faith's hungry children holding on to the, the, her, her skirt, uh, um, crying, hungry, bloated bellies, and putting oneself in the, those shoes. Ever since I became a mother, it's a very transformative moment, and uh, I carry that with me every day because it fuels a sense of urgency, passion, and inspiration to, to do the work because we do encounter situations that you know, can be disheartening. At the same time, it, it energizes and kind of gives that sense of responsibility and urgency to think about every individual. As we talk about uh, the importance of policy, Tatiana, do you ever feel as a chef, do you feel a pool to be more political? Do you feel like you could be political and still be effective in your business? Is there a tension there? How does that work? There is definitely a tension there. Um, there's that fine line between realizing that you're you're running a business that's not a political business. People are coming right. to your restaurant for pleasure. They don't, they're coming there to not think about those things, but, and also using, you know, your status or how people view you or, or how well known you are in the city as a platform to be able to create change. Um, and I think my way of doing that is to always say yes when asked to do these charities and always say yes when I can help. And it's my, you know, silent but very helpful and loud in a way also way to help without outright being political. Yeah, because you do have a voice now on a platform as, yes. a, as a successful chef and successful business leader in the community. Yeah, and, and it's using that quote-unquote success or power 
in the right ways and the right avenues where people are still going to want to come and enjoy your restaurant. Um, but you're also creating change, not just locally, but globally as well. Um, one thing I don't want to um, leave here without talking about is Puerto Rico, um, because I know Oxfam focuses internationally, but occasionally speaks up and gets active domestically as well. And I've read some very powerful words on your part, Abby, about Puerto Rico at the one month mark, 75% or so of the country is still without power, some folks without water. What do we need to be doing differently there? Well, for Oxfam, we are focusing at, at several levels. One is helping get the basic needs met, working with local partners to make sure that there's water filters, so clean water in a sustainable way. Uh, solar panels, trying to build back better if you will, and make sure that the infrastructure actually will be lasting. We're also working with people and organizations on the ground who are helping people be able to fill in forms and all the things that will enable them to get access to resources to to build back. And without power and without even the ability to navigate complex um, forms and systems, uh, that's a, a real disabler. So we're doing that. And as well as um, the advocacy, uh, we're speaking out in Congress and to people in power to look at the policies and, and practices that need to be followed right now. And so how can people get involved? Uh, please join us, go to our website and see and feel free to sign on and talk to your friends and family, write letters to Congress about keeping uh, resources flowing. Uh, and also, giving. Uh, every every dollar helps. And so giving to organizations like Oxfam so that we can get it to the people and the local organizations that are doing great work is the I, way forward. I've seen several folks now say that if uh, Puerto Rico were not just an American territory, but one of our 50 states, there's no way we would have allowed a month to go by with 75% of the the population being without power. Yeah, so. that's one of the usually, and we monitor all the the hurricanes and, and natural disasters that are recurring at an unfortunately frequent pace, um, and are very clear as you were saying about whether and when we respond, in particularly in a wealthy country such as the United States. And we did feel that there were uh, extraordinary circumstances that required us to stand up, not just to speak out, but to take action on the ground. Before we finish, um, I'd love to hear from each of you on uh, both advice you have for uh, young people that want to get into your field. Uh, Tatiana, you were talking about some of the hurdles that face young women, um, and you will be a mentor to others as you've had mentors. Uh, I'd love to hear both your, your advice for them and what's next for you. Uh, is there going to be a, another restaurant? Is there going to be a cookbook down the road? Is that too soon? I'm sure you've thought about some of these things. Absolutely. Um, my advice for people trying to get into this industry or, you know, figuring out how, how to get into the industry is just follow your heart. If it's something you're passionate about and something that you really put all your effort into, you will be successful in it. It might take a little bit longer than maybe you anticipated, but stick with it. And the hard work is worth it because in the end, you will get to that point where your voice starts being heard and you start making changes and you can start using, you know, your success to, to create change in, in this world. And I think it's very important that you realize that your hard work is not for nothing. Um, it, it will be worth it in the end. And Hopefully I can continue on this rise. And I've only just begun. I, I've only been an executive chef for a little over a year. So it's been amazing to see everything I've been able to do in this short amount of time. And I can't even imagine 
um, what I'll be doing in the future, but I'm so excited to be where I am and to be here today with you two and, and hopefully making a change. We had a conversation with Mike Isabella, chef in Washington, D.C., who has about 12 restaurants on Add Passion and Stir. And he was saying in terms of his hiring, um, you know, technical skills you can teach people. But he looks for, I really want to be here. I will work as hard as I have to. Uh, if the person's got that kind of I drive and commitment, 100%. That, that's who he's going to hire. That is how I hire. And I, I've i learned the hard way um, on hiring both. And I've hired on technical skills, but not really having the driver motivation behind it and and it almost never works out but but those that i've hired that have no experience i mean i came into the industry with no experience so i I look for that in people and and for people who want to learn and want to be there and abby advice um for those who want to get into anti-poverty work international development work those are broad terms and there's specializations within them but how how should somebody think about that because that's a hard it's a hard road and a hard path to follow. It is a hard road. And uh, I think the getting involved, being willing to roll up your sleeves and and make a difference, the heart piece is critically important. The passion, the, the belief in a positive worldview uh, that people are deserve and want a better life for themselves. And it's circ- circumstances that we can change together and bring the critical thinking and the use of the exciting use of technology and innovation that can come with that, that builds on knowledge that has been built up. And so I, for, I love working with people who want to come into our industry of any age. Uh, it's been one of the most fulfilling aspects of my career is working with young people. And uh, lastly, what's next for Oxfam in terms of any new priorities? Uh, continued focus, obviously, where you've been, still got a long way to go to reach goal, but um, anything new on the horizon for Oxfam? Well, there's a sense of urgency to what's happening around us. I want to be able to fuel and increase what we're doing at scale uh, in looking at our nutritious food for all, in our humanitarian and local humanitarian uh, food responses and our policy advocacy work. So I think you can see us uh, deepening, broadening, and continuing to innovate and find new ways of tackling the multidimensionality of uh, the injustice of poverty. Well, thank you both for being with us. Thanks for kind of the global um, outlook that you bring to this. Um, Tatiana Rosanna, am I pronouncing your name the way you would pronounce it or close, close enough? Yeah, perfectly. Okay, good. Um, from the uh, Outlook uh, Kitchen and Bar at the Envoy Hotel. Uh, thrilled to have you with us, Tatiana. And thanks for your generosity towards Share Strength and your commitment to our work. Uh, and Abby Maxman, congratulations again as new CEO of Oxfam, probably the most important global development and anti-poverty organization uh, in the world. And uh, we're thrilled to have been a small part of some of your work and thrilled to uh, follow your leadership. Well, thank you. It's a real honor to be here and to to reconnect our organizations and how we collaborate here in Boston and around the country and around the world. Get closer to the problems that you care about. There's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said, if your pictures are not good enough, you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, Getting close, bearing witness, going into the community, working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach, get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. 
I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.